Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to this Sandbox story, which is an interview with Dr. Rick Weisbarth. He spent four decades performing a number of roles for Cibavision Corporation and Alcon Laboratories, retiring in March 2023 as Vice President of Professional Affairs for Alcon, based in Fort Worth, Texas. He's been an international lecturer on contact lens topics and has been proudly involved and in service to the American Academy of Optometry. In my view, Rick is a consummate professional representative of optometry. Dr. Weisbarth, welcome to Sandbox Stories. Thanks, Scott. Pleasure to be with you. I'd like to start with your upbringing in a suburb of Cleveland. You were the oldest of four boys. Tell us about your family and what it was like growing up there. I had a wonderful upbringing. My parents were, uh, were great role models for us. I was the oldest of four boys, as you mentioned. All of our names began with R, so Rick, Ron, Ray, and Rob, uh, which made the hand-me-downs really easy. Uh, I, I got all the first picks, and poor Rob got, uh, got the last of them. But uh, a great childhood. Uh, my dad worked for Union Carbide. He was a uh, manager of shipping and receiving. Um, so we lived a, a pretty modest life. Uh, we didn't do a lot of travel. As a matter of fact, I had never been out of the state of Ohio until the summer between my third and fourth year. Uh, typical family uh, vacation was to Cedar Point Amusement Park. I would go there uh, in the summer. We belonged to a uh, family lake in the Cleveland area, and we would typically go there weekends in the summer. So uh, played baseball and uh, was involved in a, a number of other things, but uh, just a fantastic childhood. Uh, the suburb was called Fairview Park, and it was a great place to grow up as a child. And your mom was just making sure you four R's stayed on course. Absolutely, yep. She was the huge uh, job. She was the boss. Yeah. And and did you go through public schools before you went to Ohio State? Yes, I went to uh, Fairview High School, and uh, our class size was in the low three hundreds. I played. Uh, three sports, participated in cross country in the fall, basketball in the winter, and then track and field in the spring. So you're getting ready to go to college and your family physician gives you a little bit of advice. You want to share it with us? Yeah. Dr. Fisher uh, said to me the last time I saw him before going off to Ohio State for undergrad, he said, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. Don't be an old dog. And it's something that I've reflected on multiple times in, in my life. Um, it's interesting. Uh, Dr. Fisher was actually in the same assisted living facility that my parents were in. And I had a chance to revisit with him a couple of years ago. Um, and I reminded him that he gave me that advice. And he just smiled and he said, so were you the old dog? And I, I probably told him that I was not, that I was constantly learning the new tricks. Boy, that's fantastic. It must have been a real joy to reconnect with him for a month. Oh, ab absolutely. You know, when I when I saw him, you know, it was 40 plus years later. And um, it, yeah, it was 
it was neat to see him. It was not neat given that he and his wife were in assisted living. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a good experience. So you told me you were destined to be a lifelong Ohio guy. You go to OSU, you're, uh, you're going to stay in Ohio, you're going to do something with it, but you got some sort of influence toward optometry. What was it? Yeah, actually, I started out as pre-med, just like 99% of the rest of us. And uh, the very first day at Ohio State, I met my resident advisor on my floor in the dorm. He was a second-year optometry student, and he introduced me to the dorm director's husband, who was a fourth-year optometry student. So I started hanging out with them, and they invited me to come over to the College of Optometry, and I sat in on some of their classes and some of the patients, and that's where my interest in optometry really blossomed. Had you had any eye experience growing up, uh, either getting examined or having any issues, or had you been kind of skating under the radar? Yeah, no, I, uh, I did have eye issues, and I, I thought as pre-med I'd go into ophthalmology because that's... Okay who I saw in my early days. Uh, my history is that um, before kindergarten, my parents had some concerns about the fact that I was running into things and tripping over things. So they took me to the, to the pediatrician who recommended going to the ophthalmologist. And sure enough, I was minus seven with three cylinder, minus four with three cylinder. And nobody knew. So first pair of glasses came before kindergarten, and the refraction stayed pretty constant uh, throughout my life until uh, I reached about 45, and then all of a sudden the cylinder started to go away, uh, which thrilled me because now I can wear a toric contact lens, and um, you know prior to that it was rigid lenses, which I struggled with. So were you just developing more against the rule cylinder from lens changes and it was offsetting so with the rule or how did that, how did it decrease? Yeah, it, it was lenticular changes. And, uh, you know, when I told colleagues and friends about it, they said, well, you realize that you have lenticular changes. And I said, I don't care. I can't control it. All I know is I can now wear soft contact lenses. So it was a happy day. You can only control in life what you can control, right? Right. And with all that uh, corneal uh, cylinder, you'll be a great candidate for post or for cataract implants with cylindrical lenses. <laughs> exactly. All right, that's that great. Day is, that day is probably rapidly approaching. <laughs> so you're at school at Ohio State. The School of Optometry there is, is a renowned school. And you and a couple of friends start an optometry fraternity. I'm really interested to hear that story. Yeah. We actually didn't start the fraternity. The fraternity okay. had, had been there for a while. It's called Epsilon Psi Epsilon. And uh, if you write the Greek letters in, in uh, plain uh, alphabet, it's E-Y-E. Uh, I joined the fraternity my, uh, my freshman year and uh, just had a fantastic experience. Um, I was asked to step into a leadership role and actually became president of the uh, Epsilon Psi Epsilon fraternity my junior year. And uh, I guess I did a good enough job that they asked me to be president again my senior year, uh, which was kind of unprecedented. And I've kind of learned in life, if you do a really good job at something, you're going to get asked to do something again, or you're going to get asked to do something bigger. And uh that, that was part of learning the new tricks, right? Uh, the, the old dog wouldn't, wouldn't want to learn to uh, step into those kind of opportunities. But uh, my senior year, we owned 
two fraternity houses on East 12th and they were old houses and they were pretty run down. I lived in one of the houses and the alumni association decided that uh, we needed to upgrade. And so we were going to connect the two houses that were side by side. And as we looked at different plans, we became aware that there was a fraternity house on fraternity row that had become available for sale. The fraternity that was in the house had been uh, disciplined and basically kicked off campus for doing uh, what typical undergrad fraternity people do. And uh, we were able to work out a deal to uh, trade the two houses and take out a loan for a quarter of a million dollars in 1980 at 18% interest. And uh, it was interesting because uh, Jim Sheedy was president of the Alumni Association. Joe Barr was vice president of the Alumni Association. I was president of the active chapter. We went to downtown Columbus on a snowy morning in January and signed the uh, mortgage at 18% for a quarter million dollars. And uh, we got back to campus and realized what we did. So we had a go to a bar and start drinking. I'm it's happy, all, yeah, happy to report that the fraternity paid the loan off and uh, all is good and the fraternity is alive and well today. I was just going to say, it's all the beginning of, I'm sure what ended up being a fantastic out, outcome. <laughs> yes. very, and, and they have a great house as a result. I'm, I'm super curious your thoughts about the leadership that was seen in you. Um, you know, you're humble. I don't expect you to have any, you know, uh, any boldness about yourself, but there are ways that you can give to others. And my guess is you were giving to others of your time when you're in that fraternity role that somebody said, Rick would be a good person to be a leader because you were bringing other people along with you. Do you think that's what it was about at that time? I think so, Scott. Uh, interestingly enough, in my high school years, I was very introverted. Uh, as I mentioned, I participated in, in three sports, but was not, you know, involved in, in any kind of uh, club. I wasn't uh, president of the class. I wasn't, you know, wasn't in any kind of leadership role. So really, it was the fraternity that allowed me to start to develop my leadership skills. And uh, I, I think it is something that, um, you know, doesn't come natural. Uh it certainly was stepping out of my comfort zone and learning new tricks. Um, so that had started to become a, a focus in, in my career and uh, something that I'm, I'm proud of. You should be. And it's a great lesson for people that feel the same way about themselves at different points in life. So you graduate from the Ohio State Optometry College, and here we are. A lot of people don't know if you, you started in private practice in Tampa. How did you get there? What was that like? Yeah, so actually after I left Ohio State, I had a real keen interest in contact lenses. So at the time, there were two contact lens uh, residency programs. There was one at Ohio State that was a two-year program that uh, was a master's degree combined with a residency, and a brand new one starting up at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. It was the first year that they were going to have a contact lens resident. So I applied to both. I was accepted at the UAB uh, program, and off I headed to uh, to Birmingham. I had only been out of the state of Ohio one time prior to that, 
and that was the summer between my third and fourth year of optometry school. I did take extra clinic in the summer, and uh, one of my classmates stepped forward, a good friend, and said, hey, I'm interested in going to the AOA meeting in New Orleans. I'm going to drive. Does anybody want to go with me? So I raised my hand after I looked on the map to see where New Orleans was, and uh, we drove to uh, New Orleans, participated in the AOA meeting as students, and uh, it was a fantastic experience. So I go to UAB. I complete the residency program. At the end of the program, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do, and I'm starting to look into opportunities, and I... uh, ended up taking a position as a associate in a practice in Tampa. And what led me to Tampa was the fact that all it took was one winter in the South, being able to stand outside in t-shirt and shorts in January cooking on the grill. And I said, wow, there's something maybe a little bit better than Ohio winters. So I'm going to try this for a little bit. So I went to Tampa, and uh, the practice that I was in was a great opportunity, but it wasn't the right opportunity for me. So before the year was up, I had an opportunity to join SebaVision, and the way that that had come about is during my residency program year, I actually went to the SECO meeting in Atlanta, and one of the side activities was a trip up to SebaVision to see their facility. Uh, they hadn't actually sold a contact lens at that point, but I got to meet with the clinic director and the vice president of research, and I told them that I would be potentially interested in working in industry, and they said, well, we don't have any opportunities right now, but if something comes along, we'll get in touch with you. So sure enough, uh, in January, following my residency program, I got a letter from SebaVision via forwarded mail from Birmingham, Alabama. That said, we now have an opportunity and we're interested in talking to you. Got that letter on a Friday, called them on a Monday, went up for an interview, and three weeks later, we were moving from Tampa to Atlanta, Georgia. It was, it was that quick, and uh, it was a, a decision that I've never regretted. The interesting story there is we lived in an apartment in Tampa. We went to the beach while they packed up the apartment. We started driving From Tampa to Atlanta, we got as far as Lake City, Florida. We turned on the 11 o'clock news, and we see that there is a freak snowstorm that has hit Atlanta, and the city is paralyzed. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. So we drive up the next day. It was a Friday. We drive up the next day, and I've never seen this happen before, Scott. Cars were abandoned on the interstate. There was maybe six inches of snow, and cars were totally abandoned. There was one lane open going north and one lane open going south. And I said to my wife, make me a promise right here and now that we're never going to go any further north than this. (laughs) Right. We had trouble finding a hotel that night because so many people had been stranded and and had left their cars that there was no hotel room. So we, we went to five or six hotels before we finally found one that had room at the end. From the beach? to snow in Atlanta, paralyzing snow in Atlanta. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a really interesting aside. Your story is an interesting look back on the history that you and I grew up with, that to find you, a letter needed to go somewhere and get forwarded somewhere else. And Absolutely. then the follow-up was a phone call. It wasn't like somebody could phone you where you were. It's an interesting difference in how information traveled, isn't it? 
Oh, very much. There was no internet. There was no cell phones. And it wasn't only at that point in time, it was for many years in my career. You know, you, you kind of take for granted nowadays that you can, you know, you use Google Maps or any, any other app to tell you where you want to go. But when you have to pull out a map and try to figure out where you're at and how you're going to get to where you're going, um, there, there's some stories there. I, yeah, I I remember after receiving some sort of uh, recognition, perhaps doing to, doing Wisconsin Optometric Association work, that at the time the UAB dean, er, Dr. Errol Augsburger, had a routine of sending out little cards uh, with the UAB logo on the front with a little congratulatory note in it, and it impressed me about the importance uh, of writing notes, which I think still holds today. We do it also yes. infrequently. I've tried to write little handwritten notes to my kids every now and again, mostly on post-it notes, uh, you know, just to keep that, uh, that personal touch is yes. interesting. <laughs> yes. So you're drawn into the industry because contact lenses are a passion you've, you've been, been developing. What was the beginning of that role with SIBA vision? Like, uh, what role did you serve? What did you see along the way? Yeah, the uh, the role was as, as a research optometrist, and uh, all the major contact lens companies have research optometrists that they employ, and the job is to test new products, and the way that we did that is we recruited employees or family member of employees. We provided them with contact lenses and with solutions. We did not provide their comprehensive eye care. They still had to maintain a local practitioner to do that. But in exchange for participating in clinical studies, we would give them contact lenses and lens care uh, as long as they stayed active in the program. So uh, that was uh, a great experience. It built upon my residency program. And uh, I did that for a couple of years. And I was kind of at a crossroads after about three and a half years. I really was missing the patient care that I experienced in the time that I was in practice. So I actually started to uh, go to some banks in Atlanta to uh, take out a loan. I wanted to borrow $60,000. I had a, a plan put together. I had a location picked out. I went to a number of banks, and they all said the same thing. Sorry, we're not loaning money to healthcare practitioners because there's been a huge default in Atlanta with physicians, with dentists, with chiropractors, and we're going to lump optometrists into the same uh, category. I finally found one bank that was willing to loan me 60000 but they wanted me to put up 250000 collateral. Minor problem. And that was back when interest rates were, once again, 18%. So needless to say, uh, that crossroads didn't work out for me. But at that time, the president of Supervision, who was one of my patients, came in for a visit one day. And he said to me, I have an opportunity. I'd like you to get involved in doing some training of our sales and marketing department. I want to have the most knowledgeable people in the industry. And we need somebody to go out on the road and start to lecture to practitioners and do some continuing education. And, you know, I kind of thought about it and said, well, I don't really consider myself a teacher, but I did, I did do some when I was in my residency program at UAB. So I thought about it. He wanted an answer overnight. So the next morning I met with him and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm up for that opportunity. And one of the things that went through my mind was what my family physician had said, you know, don't be the old dog, learn new tricks. 
And stepping out of my comfort zone was was huge throughout my entire career, not only at this point in time, but many others. And, and still today, quite honestly, I step into things that I say, why did I do this? And the reason is you learn the most when you step out of the comfort zone. Um, you know, you can attend a course, you can uh, do a variety of different things, but the biggest learnings that I've witnessed have come when I've stepped out of the comfort zone and into, into the unknown. So that uh, that has been a key part of making me who I am today. And you ended up lecturing, as I said in our intro, internationally. Um, tell me a little bit about where you've gone to speak on the various contact lens topics to which you had expertise. Yeah, well, a lot of the international activity uh, came about due to another position that I had at SEBA Vision, and that was uh, when I was uh, involved in the training, they came to me one day and said, we're going to open a global headquarters in Zurich, Switzerland, and we need you to move there and head up clinical research on a global basis. So in uh, July of 1989, my wife and two children boarded a plane with me, and we went off to Zurich, Switzerland, where we lived for three years. So it was during that time that I really uh, started to develop the international experience. Uh, I've been to Australia. I've been to different countries in Asia, uh, different countries in Europe, uh, U.S., Canada. So uh, fortunately, I've been able to do quite a bit of travel as a result of my involvement in industry, and, and that's that's a fringe benefit. I kind of chuckle because when I get together with my classmates, they say, for the guy who was the only one in the class who had never been out of the state, you have probably traveled more than all of us added together multiplied by a factor of 10. And they're probably right. Um, I've been so fortunate to be able to, you know, literally travel around the world. Um, Japan was on the list as well. So it was just a fantastic experience. Well, you described how SEBA Vision leveraged your expertise to develop these professional relations experiences within their companies. And there are so many industry companies that have done that as well. And Siva Vision and now Elcon were fantastic at it. Can you tell us a little bit more that, that how your work in industry has given such a positive influence on the profession? Because there are things that I think our colleagues experience, but they don't necessarily digest the commitment of these companies to what we're doing every day in a dark exam room. Give us a little context as to what you saw from your side as to how these companies helped us. Sure. So the first thing that comes to mind is the fact that they're constantly introducing new products. And, and those new products just don't happen. There has to be the research and development that goes into them. So it all starts off with an idea, uh, typically to create something that meets an unmet need that we have with our patients. And uh, then there's a lot of preclinical work that the scientists have to do before a, a product is even made and before it can go onto an eye. It would have to go through a uh, investigational review board to make sure that it's safe for human consumption. And then, as I mentioned, you, you, you start slowly with what's known as a phase one clinical, where uh, it's, it's put on patients for a very short duration to make sure that everything's going to work out. And sometimes it does, and a lot of times it doesn't. Uh, I can tell you stories about uh, when it hasn't worked, and uh, they're, they're quite, quite interesting. 
So bringing the, the product to market, starting with the phase one, then you go to phase two clinicals, which is a, a little bit broader experience. And then phase three is ultimately where investigators out in practice are trying the product on patients to make sure that it is safe and effective. So uh, new products to market is, is the first thing. Also technological advances, it's not just about products. And I think we're really starting to see that now in terms of different types of materials, in terms of um, different types of manufacturing technology. You know, just think about disposable lenses today as compared to when you and I started when lenses were made with a lathe, they were put in a glass vial, and typically what you had to do is you had to order at least two because you weren't sure that they were going to work the same as what the patient was originally wearing. And then when it came to toric lenses, oh my gosh, you know, you just prayed that that minus three, minus one axis 90 was going to work the same as the previous minus one or minus three, minus one axis 90. You know, we were used to refer to the lenses and vials as snowflakes. And the reason we called them snowflakes is no two were alike. So when you look at the technology that's that's come into the market, yeah, it, it's just been phenomenal in, in terms of what we can do with patients. There was no such thing as OCTs. You know, when I was in school, we learned fields on tangent screen and, and you know, the earliest of, of uh, perimeters. So things have just advanced so much. Uh, the companies also provide a lot of financial support to our profession. Uh, if there wasn't support from the companies at major conferences, our registration fees would be well over $1,000 to get the type of event that we currently experience. And that all starts the schools and colleges. You know, companies start educating us and, and bringing us on board as we're students and then carry on throughout our careers. So the financial support is also important. There's also the clinical and professional development in, in terms of the courses and training that they provide, um, how to be a better practitioner, how to, how to survive in an ever more competitive marketplace. Uh, those are all things that manufacturers provide. And then uh, the last one is they advocate for the doctor-patient relationship, making sure that as different entities enter into the eye care picture, that the doctor still is in charge of what that patient is receiving in terms of care. And like I say, you know, all the major companies are now hiring optometrists in key roles. And uh, that's important in, in terms of having an influence on how the companies interact with practitioners and, uh, you know, some of the policies that they set forward. So, I think industry does a lot of positive things for the profession, and I'm proud to have been a part of that for 40 plus years. And you work with so many interesting people along the way. I had the good fortune of being in practice with somebody that ended up in your sphere of influence. My mm -hmm. old partner, Dr. Peter Burkensky, uh, yes. was with you for a while. And I think when I hear you speak about all the interactions you've had, that you have a perspective on how unique optometrists are as human beings. What, what makes optometrists tick? Why are optometrists special kinds of people? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, Scott. Um, a couple of things come to mind. One, uh, there's been surveys done, and most optometrists got into the field 
because they wanted to help people. That was the number one reason. Number two, they had a vision problem or a family member had a vision problem. But number one is they wanted to work with people and help people. And optometry is is very interesting and the eye care industry is very interesting because I've seen a number of colleagues at both Seba Vision and Alcon leave thinking that there were greener pastures, either in selling medical equipment or other uh, branches of medicine. And they do it for a year or two because they, they see a lot of financial gains. But they come back after that year or two and they come back into eye care and they say, you know what? Even though I was making more money, I hated it. I hated the people that I worked with. I hated the doctors that I had to call on. It was cutthroat. And there just isn't family like there is in the eye care and especially the optometry profession. It really is a profession where we look out for each other and we embrace each other as family. Yes, there are some competitive situations amongst companies. There's some competitive um, situations amongst practitioners in a given location, but we are family. And I I think we all remember that and we treat each other with a lot of uh, respect and um, that's what makes us tick. Yeah, that's well said. When in your career did you begin your commitment to the American Academy of Optometry? That's an interesting story. So um, Harold Davis was in charge of the uh, support committee, uh, the, the sponsorship committee. And Harold and I had a conversation one time and he asked uh, some advice on some topics and I was happy to give him some advice and he said, I'd really like to, uh, you know, get you involved in things. So that was the start of things. He encouraged me to lecture at the academy. And uh, I started to do that. And other people stepped forward and said, would you like to become involved in, in the section on cornea and contact lenses? And I said, yes. So I became a member in that. And I went through uh, the diplomate process. And then one year, I was asked to appear before the uh, nominating committee to give them some advice on what they should be looking for in terms of a board member. And I didn't realize it was a trick. Uh, What they actually were doing is they were interviewing me for a board position, much to uh, me being unknown to that. So that was on a Saturday morning. On Sunday, I get a call saying, you're not expecting this, but the nominating committee would like to nominate you to be a member of the board. Would you accept our nomination? And I was like, uh, I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, and they said, well, we need you to think about it because the election is this afternoon and you need to have somebody uh, nominate you from the floor and then someone else to do a seconding speech. So that is how I got involved. And I always approached it very cautiously, Scott, because working in industry, um, some of our colleagues think that you're going to be biased. And and unfortunately, some people who work in industry do have a bias and they wear the company hat uh, through and through. I'm very fortunate in that both Vision and Alcon allowed me to be an optometrist first and an employee of the company second. And my premise in industry was always I'm going to be an optometrist 
and I'm not going to step over that line and, uh, you know, carry the company flag when it isn't appropriate. So learning when to wear the right hat was very important uh, in terms of learning what was going to work in industry. So um, with that said, I was very fortunate to always say to people, look, I'll move to the next level if that's what the membership of the academy wants me to do. I'm not going to take for granted that I'm going to move from one level to the next to the next. And every two years, uh, I had to say that again to my colleagues and say, I will accept the nomination to re-up and move up a level, provided that's what the membership of the academy wants me to do. If they think that there's an issue there or that there's a conflict, then I'm happy to step out. It's, it's not about me. It's about what's best for the academy. So... I was fortunate enough to move through all the chairs and served as president of the organization. And I think we accomplished some great things. I mean, that's the ultimate demonstration of commitment through volunteering. So I guess I wonder what advice you have for those listening who don't necessarily have a compelling need to volunteer in their career. Um, I know you get always more out of it than you put into it, but you've also, with that team you worked with, done an awful lot for the profession, what advice could you give? Yeah, no, the advice that I give to, uh, to colleagues is you, you have a responsibility when you, when you finish professional school. And there's a number of responsibilities, and one of them is to your profession. Uh, we are who we are today due to all of those who have gone before us. If we think back to our school days and, and the fact that when I was in school, I got a great education. But we had no binocular and direct uh, ophthalmoscopes. We didn't have the technology. We didn't have therapeutic drugs. So the profession has advanced because our colleagues have stepped up before us. And I always tell people, you have to get involved. It's, it's, it's a responsibility. And we can become involved at different levels and different things. Some have an avocation to, you know, really advocate and, and go out and meet their legislators. Others say, okay, that's not for me. And, and that's fine. We don't all have to step into the same shoes. But I totally encourage people to become active. You know, join your local society. Get involved in your state association. If, if you so desire, move on to regional and national activities. Um, Make sure that you join your alumni associations of, of your school or college. Uh, join the academy and, and once again, step out of your comfort zone. Become a diplomat in the area that interests you. And, and you know, all of those things are important. And, and when you think about the four years that you spend together with your classmates, keep those relationships alive. Go to your school reunions. Uh, we had our 40th. It, didn't, it was supposed to happen during COVID and, and got delayed. And we had a fantastic time for those who showed up, so much so that this summer, seven of us got together for a mini reunion and said, you know what, we're going to do this on a more frequent basis. We, we were really delinquent in, in waiting to the 40th to really renew some of those friendships and, and renew the memories that we had. Yeah, we worked hard to get our degrees, but we had a lot of fun and we had a lot of laughs along the way. Uh, there's a lot of stories and we kind of have to pledge to one another that 
A story between one of us and another is going to stay between the two of us. Thank goodness there weren't cameras back in those days. <laughs> I, I love the, the commentary about lifelong learning. It's, it's a really important part of being a healthcare professional. And I sense that it's become almost a little bit more of a responsibility than a sense of obligation to the patient when people are counting their hours. Um, and I, I hope that your words would positively impact the listeners to become really committed to lifelong learning. It doesn't have to be just for optometry, right? Right. No, I, I totally agree. And I, I do see that as a responsibility. You know, we're fortunate that with our degrees, we can do a lot of different things. And I, I feel like I've done those different things. Uh, you know, I've done the teaching, I've done the research, I've done the professional uh, affairs, I've done the advocacy. Um, and, and each one has been a fantastic learning opportunity. But regardless of how we use our degree, whether it's with your patients, whether it's with your research or research subjects, or with your students, if you go into academia, we have an ethical and a moral uh, responsibility to be compassionate with everybody that we work with and to stay current. Boy, if, if you don't stay current, and this is something the, the president of the company told me when I got involved in that training role, he said, you know, I still want you to keep your clinical skills up because if you don't, then you've got maybe two to three years where you're going to become not worthwhile to me. If you don't keep your clinical skills up and continue to see patients and continue to fit lenses and continue to uh, do comprehensive exams, then you are going to become obsolete. So that was an important uh, learning as well. And, and once again, it was teaching the old dog new tricks because, you know, I, I see so many of our colleagues say, okay, you know, I'm going to move from this to this and forget where I came from. And I, I think it's important not to forget where you come from. Speaking of that, um, if I gave you an entire day, you could probably build a couple page list of important mentors. But when I ask you right now, who first comes to mind? Uh, are there a couple of people that influenced you in the most positive way in your career? Oh, ab absolutely, Scott. So, you know, starting off in school, I had fantastic uh, mentors and uh, educators, Kevin Alexander, Errol Augsburger, Mike Pulaski. Uh, Paul Ed Schmidt, Joe Barr, John Pohl, John Schessler just were fantastic. And, and I know I'm forgetting a lot of others. Then I went to the residency program at UAB and John Amos was the residency program director. Jimmy Bartlett was alongside him, Larry Alexander. Norm Leach was my contact lens mentor. Then when I got into practice, um, you know, the, 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 uh, ability to interact with people that, that first year was uh, lessened. But as I got involved in the academy, just so many leaders within the academy, all of the members of the board that I served on, Tom Lewis, Sarita Sony, Mark Edgar, Carla Zadnick, uh, just, you know, a whole host of people. And I still look up to them today. I, I was recently in Birmingham and had the opportunity to have dinner with John Amos and his wife, Kathy. And we just had a great time talking about the past and, and looking uh, into the future. So um, one of the big pieces of advice that mentors gave to me as I was contemplating retirement was go in with the plan. 
so many of them said, boy, I spent the first six months, I, I spent the first year trying to figure out what, what retirement was going to be about. And a lot of them told me they were going to struggle. So I really took that advice to heart. And uh, I'm as busy as ever. The best part about retirement, though, is being able to do what you want to do and eliminate the things you don't want to do and doing them with the people you want to do them with. And uh, that's where I'm at at this stage in life and, and just having a great time. And one of the things that transcended your date of retirement was your work with an organization called the National Academies of Practice. You're currently the immediate past president. What's their mission and why is it important that your optometry voice has been there? Yeah, the National Academies of Practice is an alliance of uh, different professionals. There are 15 different academies, and this alliance of professionals collaborate to basically promote health and well-being. Uh, the mission is all about advancing interprofessional health care in terms of education, scholarship, research, practice, and, and public policy. And I got involved. I was nominated for uh, a role, uh, membership in the organization, and that's how you, how you become a member. You, you are nominated by your peers. And I just found that this was a different avenue to get involved. Uh, I, I didn't, quite honestly, know a lot about the other professions. And I always tell people, I had a great education, but the extent of my interprofessional education was learning how to write a referral letter, typically to an ophthalmologist, a family physician, or a neurologist. But as I started to get involved in National Academies of Practice, I realized that there were so many other healthcare professions that can help us provide care to our patients. Uh, National Academies of Practice consist of 15 different healthcare professions, soon to be 16, and it's all about working interprofessionally. So I, I started out in the Optometry Academy, uh, which has about 100 members, and uh, they asked me once again to get involved on a uh, larger level at the national level. And it was a point in time when my parents were having some health care issues. My daughter was having some health care issues. And what I saw was how the different health care professions don't talk to one another. They throw you to the wolves. They say you need to see someone else. But there's not a lot of dialogue amongst the different professionals. So that really got me interested, and I started out in uh, the role uh, as vice president of membership in the national organization, and then ultimately they asked me to become the president-elect and the president. And I really had to think twice about that, because if we think that working with optometrists is challenging sometimes, and I know we all know the story about trying to get six optometrists to agree on where to go for lunch, imagine trying to get 15 different healthcare professionals working together and going in the same direction. And what we have to ground ourselves with is the patient is at the center of everything that all of those different professions do. So it's been a fantastic experience. I think we're really making a difference. I think the students today are well educated and they are learning to work interprofessionally. A lot of optometry students have courses together with med students, but met with med students, with vet students, with dentists, and that really starts to build the relationships. But one of the things that I saw in National Academies of Practice 
is if we all put our pride down and raise our hands and say, I really don't know how all these different professions interact and can care for my patients. Boy, do you learn a lot. You learn a lot. You don't normally think about a physical therapist helping an optometry patient, but yes, they can. Occupational therapists, even veterinarians have a role to play in the health and well-being of our patients. And there's stories about how veterinarians have been able to get through to a patient of ours and emphasize to them how important their diabetic care is, because if they're not around, then their pets are going to have nobody to take care of them. So it, it's just been such a fantastic experience uh, to interact and with and learn from other healthcare providers. Yeah, that's compelling. And then you also have been working in support of something called the Elcon Children's Vision Center. It's a 501c3 organization that provides uh, and serves care for underprivileged children in the Fort Worth Independent School District. How did that come to be at Elcon and, and what are you doing with them today? Yeah, uh, that's uh, one of my, my proud uh, stories, Scott. So Fort Worth is a very interesting city. I, I relocated here in 2011 when Seba Vision and Alcon merged together. I wanted to be a part of that merger uh, because Alcon at that point became the largest eye care company in industry. And our, our goal was to you know really help eye care practitioners serve their patients. Uh, our motto was stronger together. So Fort Worth is an interesting place. Um, one of the interesting, most interesting places I think I've lived besides Switzerland. Uh, it is the fastest growing large city. It is the 13th largest city in the U.S. based on population, and that's from the July 2022 U.S. Census. Uh, the Fort Worth Independent School District, or FWISD, has 72,000 students. 35,000 of those 72 are in elementary school. Uh, the kids come from diverse backgrounds. There are students that are from families of 118 different countries, and they speak 58 different languages. So it was an opportunity. Uh, 76 of the 80 elementary schools are Title I, which means that students are from low-income families, making up at least 40% of the enrollment, and that makes them eligible to use federal funds. So Alcon had been involved for a number of years in terms of helping to screen the kids in the elementary school. The problem was that a number of the children, a large number, the vast majority, never went on from the vision screenings that they failed to have comprehensive eye exams. So they were falling through the cracks. When the Alcon CEO, uh, new CEO, David Endicott, came in, uh, he started to quiz some of us about the vision screenings that we were doing. And when he saw that very few of them had comprehensive exams, he charged a couple of us with finding a solution. So uh, that was right before COVID hit, and COVID certainly made it a challenge. But what we decided to do was open up a children's vision clinic, which we call the Alcon Children's Vision Center. We had to figure out a model that would work. Uh, and what we ended up doing is um, partnering with Fort Worth ISD. And they had a uh, 
healthcare clinic on one of the school campuses that was run by a local hospital. The local hospital system decided to abandon that clinic as a result of COVID. So that now meant that there was a uh, space available with three exam rooms, which we converted into exam lanes. And uh, we ended up hiring three ODs and two technicians and an optician. And what we are doing is we're providing comprehensive exams for those kids who can't afford eye care in the community. So we have a failure rate of the screenings of a little over 20%, which compares with other studies that have been published, which means there's 7,000 kids who need that follow-up care, most of which we're not getting it. So we're starting to uh, chip away at that. In our first full year of operation, we were able to get to a little under 50%. And our goal in this next school year is to expand even further. Uh, we've had to come up with different ways to address our model. Uh, one of the things that we had to come up with is a lot of the children don't have transportation to the clinic. So what we do fall semester is we go to the schools. So once we know the children who have failed a screening within a school, we take our clinic mobile, go to the school, we set up in the library or the gymnasium or wherever we can get with portable lanes, and we do comprehensive eye exams. And one of the things that we've identified for this new school year is we're going to do uh, what we call pyramid or blitz events, where we go to a central location and we have five or six schools bust in. Uh, to that location. And the Fort Worth ISD uh, board has uh, agreed to support us. They'll transport the students uh, to the to the central uh, location. So we're going to do an event one week in October and one week in November. We'll hire some part-time optometrists to also help with that venture. And our goal is to uh, to get through more of those children who need comprehensive eye exams. Our goal is really more than just providing comprehensive eye exams to the kids. We really want to educate the teachers, the nurses, the parents about how important eye exams are. So uh, that's a part of the effort as well. In addition to the eye exams, we do provide glasses to those who need uh, refractive error correction, and that's all funded through the Alcon Foundation. Um, we have a motto of helping kids learn by helping kids see. And our slogan that's actually painted onto the side of the building is we have a picture of a child with a pair of glasses on, and it says, my eyes are ready to learn. Now, to make this uh, feel-good story even better, Scott, <laughs> we partner with the Lighthouse for the Blind in Fort Worth. They have an optical laboratory and they are the lab that is making the majority of glasses for these children who do need refractive error correction. So it, it just is something that I'm very proud to be a part of. Uh, we're still learning. We're still growing. We have a lot more to do. Uh, we recently had a meeting with the school nurses for all the elementary schools, and you'd be shocked in terms of the number of nurses who've never had an eye exam. You'd be even more shocked in terms of the school teachers who've never had an eye exam. And when you ask them why, they say, well, when I was in the fifth grade, we had a vision screening and I was told I had 20-20 vision. Why would I need an eye exam? So there's a lot more we can do. And, 
you know, I've been able to uh, tell a lot of our colleagues in national academies of practice why eye care is important. Uh, the number of dentists who've never had an eye exam is pretty astounding. So there's a lot we can do, and, and it's a passion that I've developed. Uh, you know, my, my why in life is trying to create a better tomorrow for patients, for the eye care community, and for the community in which I live in. And if I can leave it a little bit better than where I found it when I started, then I'm pretty, uh, pretty happy with what I've been able to accomplish. Well, uh, great congratulations to the Alcon Foundation, you and everyone involved. And there is an incredible lesson. Um, I and many other optometrists have done our work with local PTAs, schools, and this is just on an entirely different scale. There's also Vision USA and the Infant C program from the American Optometric Association. I'm sure you join me in encouraging everybody to just jump in where they can. Absolutely. Um, a couple things about you before we go. Sure. Um, you enjoy carpentry and gardening. Yes. But I'm curious, what about those things gives you joy? Well, uh, when I was growing up, uh, I came from a family of four boys. My dad had uh, six brothers and my mom had four sisters. On my dad's side of the family, two were carpenters. They had a, a house building business and two were painters. Uh, so I spent my early summer years on job sites and I just loved everything about carpentry. I don't, uh, I don't uh, do a lot today. I do volunteer with Habitat for Humanity, and that's where I get my house building in a couple times a year. But I like doing uh, building projects around home, you know, building extra shelves or uh, making small tables or things of that nature. I'm by no means a, uh, an accomplished woodworker, but uh, I, I love the big stuff. I like, you know, putting up my own fences and that type of thing. And uh, the gardening uh, hobby came from my dad. Uh, he had a greenhouse at our first house. Uh, he raised a lot of geraniums and other plants, and uh, he definitely had a green thumb. So I, I learned a lot from my dad. I learned a lot from his brothers, and uh, that's carried through uh, my entire life. I love it. And let's close down the discussion with anything that might be a highlight about your family. Um, I know you love spending time with them. Tell us about them and uh, the joy they give you. Yeah, I, we have two children. Uh, my wife is Pam. She's been my partner. We met at UAB. She was actually a technician in one of the student teaching programs. And I was in the uh, residency clinic, so different parts of the building. And one of the things we were told in our uh, very first resident meeting was, you should not have any interactions with students, staff, or patients. So when Pam and I met at a back-to-school party, we had to have a secret uh, dating relationship, and then got married at the end of our residency program. We have two children. Our son, Tyler, is a research scientist for a pharma company in New York. Uh, he has gone into pharmacodynamics. So once he started uh, some of his advanced level courses, I had to say time out. Our daughter, Kristen, lives here in Fort Worth, and she is a financial analyst for a hospital system. So we're very proud of both of them. We love spending time together as a family. Uh, one of the traditions that we started uh, about 14 years ago now is uh, at the holiday period, my wife and I were both working hard. And I said to Pam, I said, 
we need to spend some time and smell the roses. So we agreed at that point to spend some time together on each other's birthday. So I asked her where she wanted to go and her birthday's in January. And she said, I think I'd like to go to St. Thomas. We were there on a cruise and I'd like to see more of it. So the first year was three days, then it turned into four days, then it turned into a week. And then when we moved to Fort Worth, I knew she would miss the kids, even though they were off doing their own thing. So I flew them in the day before we arrived in St. Thomas. And the drill is always you check in about four o'clock, you go down to the pool, you have a drink and you watch the sunset. So they're at the back of the outdoor bar and my wife sits down and she said, I just love it here. I hope someday the kids can enjoy this. And I just reached over my shoulder and said, now. (laughs) And uh, they surprised her. Uh, Fast forward a couple more years. My daughter uh, is dating someone and uh, on dinner for my wife's birthday, he proposed to my daughter. So now the whole family goes each and every year. It's a tradition we keep alive and uh, it just brings us a lot of joy. Great stuff. Dr. Rick Weisbarth, thank you for your career contributions to our industry and for the motivation you give us through your stories. You have definitely avoided being the old dog. Absolutely. And I'm still learning new tricks. Uh, To the audience, I hope that you can learn so much from Dr. Weisbarth's stories. And thanks for attending. Until my next Sandbox story, be great at all you do.